Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Carol Ballard. Mr. Ballard has directed Never Cry Wolf, Fly Away Home, and The Black Stallion. The Black Stallion will be shown Saturday, January 13, 2018 at 2 p.m. at the Main Library on 615 Church Street in the Auditorium. More later, on to the interview. The cinematographer of The Black Stallion, Caleb Dishanal, stated, In a sense, the beginning of The Black Stallion was made the way I had made every educational film I ever shot. We just went in. We didn't have a big crew, a couple of grips, prop guys, and a bunch of guys running around with horses. And I, my question is, what's the advantage of working like this? Well, it allows you to make a film that is... Uh uh, you know, visually more interesting, I think. Uh, you know, most films are, because they're a business, you know, the investors want to make sure they're, they know what they're getting into, and so there's a script. And then, uh, you know, there are lines that people speak, and it kind of puts you in a box. And, uh, and so we went out there just try to discover what we could make happen in reality and photograph it. And there was no real script for a good portion of that film. And we just kind of made it up as we went along. And it was completely out of, you know, the norm in terms of, uh, you know, American films, certainly. You once stated you like to direct from behind the, a working camera, and you said some of your best ideas came from behind the camera. Could you give an example of that while you were working on The Black Stallion? Well, uh, I, I can't really come up with a sterling example of it because, I mean, every day there's a ton of different ideas that come and go. I started out as a cameraman. I was mainly interested in the imagery and... So I like to shoot a lot, and so by watching the composition of the shot as it happens and the actor and how they look and how they perform and so on and so forth, it gives you a very different sense. It gives you a very different impression of what's happening compared to if you're just the director standing over there looking at it with your eye it's a very different looking thing when you're looking at it through the camera if you have a like a telephoto lens on or you know something that changes that reality or controls that reality to some extent and so making judgments i felt in terms of what was being portrayed on the screen in order to really make a judgment about that you had to look through the camera you went to UCLA Film School with Francis Ford Coppola, who was also the executive producer on The Black Stallion and Wind. Could you discuss your working relationship? Well, I mean, we went to school together. We uh, went through a lot of difficulties together. And, you know, we, and we had kind of similar approaches to how films should be made. And we didn't really much agree with the way the business was operating at that time. And after Francis hit it really big pretty early on, and and, uh, and he, he got some some power, you know, that's the coin of the realm in, in, uh, in Hollywood. So 
he covered for me on the Black Stallion. He was he was able to say, okay, you go out there and do it. And the conditions that we had to make the film under, as I say, were totally the opposite of how almost all American films were made in those days. And to this day, it's still considered outrageous that somebody would go out and make a film like this. So... <laughs> It wouldn't have been possible if uh, if I hadn't been sort of protected by Francis, because he he uh, he allowed me to make choices and and to be on my own in a way that no you know studio would have allowed. You refer to exposition as a yak scene, and what is it you don't like about exposition or yak scenes? <laughs> Well, because that's 99% of almost all uh, films or television and everything else. It's all just talking heads, you know. And I just get tired of it. I mean, if it's really well done, I mean, I, there's, it, it's great. But a lot of it is just, as I say, I mean, in order to get the project off the ground in the first place, you got to have the script. And so the script dictates what it is that, is going to happen. This person is going to say, "Why well, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm going to kick your ass. Right? Okay, so that's what's going to be on the film. Well, that's a very different thing than if you, if you had the emotional information that you wanted to convey and you had the freedom to do that however, however you could figure it out. It would be very different. But being tied to this, uh, you know, the iron fist of the dialogue is, uh, to me, an extremely limiting way of using the cinema. You made Never Quire Wolf for Disney during the early 80s, and Disney at that time was trying to find an audience, and the studio was going for, like, darker types of movies during that time. And what was it like to work for Disney at that time? Well, it was it was fine. I, I mean, again... You know, I came in as uh, on this project as somebody who uh, maybe had a secret or two. Apparently, what happened was um, they had made a film called uh, The Black Hole, which was a science fiction film. I've, I've never seen the film. But they had, it was the most expensive and the most difficult film they'd ever undertaken. And somebody who had a weird sense of humor uh, booked those two films in the same theater in Century City in L.A., which is right next to Fox Studios. And so the Black Stallion opened, it was a duplex. Black Stallion opened in one theater and the Black Hole opened in the other. First week, the Black Hole made gigantic amounts of money and the Black Stallion made nothing, but Within four weeks, that was completely reversed. That's the kind of thing that makes a real big difference in Hollywood. And so Disney, they made me an offer that I, I, I couldn't refuse. They gave me complete freedom to make the film however I wanted to, which is something that Disney, I don't think, has ever done. And today, I don't think they're... Even today, they... they they would like to be able to disown the film because it's not Disney, you know. It's not their commercial brand, so to speak. Uh, the composer of Never Cry Wolf and Fly Away Home is Mark Asham, and 
He stated yeah. that you were the one that thought he should be a film composer, and now he's one of the most prolific film composers out there. And what did you see, or maybe I should say, or hear in Mark Isham that you thought he would be a good film composer? Well, what had happened is that we had uh, we had done uh, done a score to the film, and it just didn't work. It just didn't work. It's very important the inter- interplay between sound and picture, especially music. And you work very hard to get a, an image that speaks a certain way, and then the music completely contradict, contradicts that. It's, it's it's to me very irritating. So anyway, I'd, I'd blown a lot of money on a score that wasn't working, and uh, and Disney said, "Okay, we'll we'll give you ten grand to solve the problem," and that's it. So I had a little contest here in San Francisco. I, I let it be known in the film community that this job was up for grabs. And what I wanted is I wanted the various composers who lived here in the area to, to, do, you know, to do a few cues. In other words, to look at maybe two or three minutes of the film and then compose mu- some music to go to that, to that piece of action. And there was about uh, oh, a half a dozen people who tried out. And Mark, Mark just had a sense. He was able to, to look at the picture and see what was coming out of the picture, other than dialogue or what people were saying. What was coming out of the picture, how it was speaking through its imagery, and to translate that into music. And, uh, and I thought he did an extraordinary job. He just had this little synthesizer on his lap, a little cheapo job, at that time, he was a trumpet player in the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. He was interested in, in getting involved in film, but didn't know exactly how to do it. So anyway, he, he, he saved the movie in lots of ways, because <laughs> he did a terrific job, and he did it within budget and within time, and he just uh, he had a sense of that. And uh, I enjoyed working with him on Fly Away Home as well, but... Uh, on the last picture I made, uh, he was signed up to do the film, but then the studio said that they they wouldn't pay him, you know, and so he, they kicked him off the film, which was absurd. Uh, and then they turned around and didn't release the picture. So I watched Never Quiet Wolf again just recently, and the scene where Charles Martin Smith was with the caribou still really blows my mind and. Could you discuss the filming of that sequence? <laughs> well, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about uh, in terms of you know the difference between the money people who are in the business of making movies and the creative people. It's it's oftentimes like on another planet. I in reading the book, I felt that the the real climax of this story of this guy out there studying the wolves was this kind of primal experience that he had where you know the, the wolves were hunting and he and he you know ran along with them and saw what it was that happened and you know had this whole incredible kind of experience and then there's no dialogue there's just a bunch you know a, a naked man running around and a bunch of animals you know but as I said I had a I had a contract with Disney that indicated that I I had the right to you know, decide what the movie was going to be. So 
you know, we had this problem, and it took us, you know, the budget of the picture went up by like 30% because we found this sequence so difficult to film. The only way that the producers figured out that we could do it was there was a, a business going on up in the far north, in fact, I think it still is, of raising caribou or you know, herds of caribou and then cutting off their horns and getting the fuzz off the off of the horns and selling it to the far eastern countries as an aphrodisiac. This stuff was worth at that time it was worth eighty dollars an ounce, which was a lot of money. It was kind of like what pot would sell for. We approached a couple of these guys who raised the reindeer, and uh, you know, we made a deal with them to use their herd to be able to try to film this scene. And the first year we attempted, it had it had to happen all the way out in Nome. So we flew into Nome with uh, you know, wolves, half a dozen wolves, some horses to be able to try to control the action, some cowboys. And with all of our camera gear and our crew and everything, and we stayed at the local high school because uh, there was no place in Nome for to put anybody up. What happened was I tried to organize it so that the rain, the caribou were all herded out onto this peninsula that was surrounded on three sides by water, and then we'd build a fence across the other end of it, and that would give us control over the caribou; they couldn't escape. Because out there in the tundra, I mean, it just, you know, it goes on forever. I mean, the horizon, you can see for 100 miles. So we did that, and the first night we shot, it was fabulous. I mean, we had no idea what was going to happen. All I knew what to do was to put the guy out there and, and then herd the caribou around him and then let the wolves loose and see what happened. And we had like six cameras and uh, you know long lenses, and we hoped we could get a few seconds every every night. We planned on on shooting for a whole month. First night was fantastic. I mean, the the wolves—they were Hollywood wolves. They'd never seen a caribou in their lives, but somehow, boy, they knew what to do and uh, let them out of the cages. They took off after the caribou, and golly, we got you know. Oh, I made 20 seconds or something that first night. It was terrific. And then the fog came in. We spent a day, couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then the next day, we looked out on the peninsula and the caribou were all gone. They had, they had, they had gotten the water and swam across this whole big body of water about 10 miles into the tundra on the other side, and they were gone. They disappeared. So what were we going to do? I mean, we we only had a deal with the, the caribou guy for, like, uh, I think 15 nights or something like that to be able to film this. And it was he said it was going to take him at least two weeks to get, to get the caribou herded up again. So well, what are we going to do now? We didn't know what to do. In, in the end... The caribou guy said he would he would make a deal with us. He would go get the caribou, and we could have him for two weeks if we would buy him a new Jet Ranger helicopter. 
because he was he thought that that would be a really good way for him to control his caribou. Well, that was like four and a half million dollars or something, but that was out of the question. So we packed up the wolves and the horses and the cowboys and everything and flew back to to the Yukon where we were filming the rest of the story. And uh, we knew we had to come back the next year because, you know, in the Arctic, it changes enormously from day to day. For the season, summer season is very short, you know. The caribou, you know, he they take garden shears and cut all the horns off the caribou. I mean, these days, maybe with uh, CGI and everything, maybe we could have filmed the, the hornless caribou and put them in later on. <laughs> but in those days, there was no... You had to do it for real. So we came back the next year, spent a month, and shot the scene. And, and we essentially, the the... The way we shot it was just very simple. Every night, we'd put the guy out there, we'd bring the caribou around, we'd let the wolves loose, and all hell would break loose, and we'd hope we'd get three or four really good shots. We did that for a month, and then in the editing room, we made the scene. That's how that happened. But as you can see, that wasn't exactly the Hollywood method. No, not at all. Uh, I really enjoyed your documentary seems like only yesterday in that movie uh-huh. you were talking to centurions about the changes in los angeles and you would intercut the interviews with like television commercials or scenes of busy highways and advertisements yeah. and yeah. when i look at your other films like never cry wolf and wind fly away home and duma there's that intrusion of corporate america into people's lives yeah. is this where this idea sort of gelled from the idea for uh, seems like only yesterday. Yeah, I mean, well, well that I, that idea came from uh, many years before, before I even went to film school. I was living in L.A., and my grandfather and grandmother were living out in Tahunga, which is a little town out at the base of the mountains near L.A. I went out to visit them one weekend and. There, at that point, they were pretty close to 100 years old. They were still living in their own house and, you know, taking care of themselves. And they started talking all about all this stuff, about, you know, what my grandfather, when he first came to L.A., he said it was about three blocks long, and, you know, there was a general store, and there was, uh, you know, a couple of streets. And, and it just did the sort with what, the world that I knew of L.A. at that point. I remember going back to my apartment in Hollywood, which was right where the freeway goes over the, the mountain there, and there was a million cars roaring by out there every few minutes, and uh, there was this, this these lights that went off to the horizon every direction, and you know, 10, 12 million people, and, and that had happened in one lifetime, in his lifetime and I thought my god that's quite incredible well I didn't think about making a film at that point but later on I remembered talking to my grandparents about this and and thought well gee that might make an interesting film at that point it was just before the celebration of the bicentennial 
I had been trying to make a film about the writing of the Declaration of Independence, which is an incredible story if you've ever really gone through it. You know, the the money guys just wouldn't buy it. They didn't care and uh, didn't want to do that project. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll suggest something else. And so I suggested this film about the old people because it, at the bicentennial, the, the state of California had found, had gone to all the oldest people in the state had, and had made a registry of them. And one of them, of course, was my own grandfather, who was still alive. And he's the guy in the movie who talks about the Chinese. That's my grandfather. So it was PBS who finally agreed to put up the money to, to, to gave me a grant, a $10,000 grant, to make the film. That was not enough money to make the film. I just... Yeah, so I, I photographed the thing myself because I couldn't afford a crew. So I would go and find these people and just set the camera down and I had this little rig in my hand where I could turn it on and off and the recorder. And so I was a one-man band. I'd go to these people's houses and photograph them. And, and But I only had so much film. And the trick was to talk to them, get them talking about things, and then at the right moment, when they're going to say something really interesting, you turn the camera on. But of course, I lost three quarters of the great stuff that happened because I wasn't quick enough on the trigger. But uh, that was how that's how that film was made. And when CBS finally saw the film, they thought it was it was outrageous, and they were afraid they were going to be sued by every corporation in the country, and uh, that they. It was too much of a risk for them, so they, they they never did show it. Did your grandfather get to see the movie? He didn't. It, it took me about three years to edit the film because I kept running out of money and I have to go do some other job for a while and then come back and then do a little more. But he passed away uh, about a year and a half after, after I shot his little segment. In the motion picture Wind, the character Morgan Weld, played by Cliff Robertson, makes the following statement. It's, sometimes we pay too high price for our dreams. Have you ever felt like that being a film director? No. I mean, you do in a, in a, in a realistic sense, in the sense that, you know, if you don't go along with the boys and your movies don't make any money, uh, you know, you're out. Uh, that essentially is what happened to me. I couldn't make a picture at all these days. Unemployable. Have been for the last 20 years. In 1986, you directed Nutcracker, and could you discuss your working relationship with Maurice Sendak? Yeah, that was... Uh, it was a kind of a ridiculous film. I mean, it was uh, sort of a small production outfits thought thought they could make this cheap movie, cheap Christmas movie, by filming this ballet that had been put on for several years up in uh, Seattle. So they thought, well, if they just film that ballet and then sell it as a nutcracker, they could make a lot of money and they could really do it cheap. But because Maurice was involved, I I agreed to, to try to do it. And it was a, a wonderful experience for me uh, uh, working with Maurice. He was one of the most uh, vital and interesting and creative people I've met in my whole life. And he was a lot of fun to work with. And 
and he and I, after the Nutcracker, we tried to we tried to do two or three other different projects, and we could never sell them to the money guys. The money guys never saw the light. So those those things never happened. But Maurice was a great guy. He really was. You did second unit photography on the original Star Wars, and what were your responsibilities on that movie, and do you have any special memories of working on that now iconic movie? <laughs> There's an incredible story about the making of Star Wars, if, uh, if anybody ever comes out with it, because uh, it, was, uh, it was full of all kinds of surprises and unexpected events. What had happened is that George shot the film in England, and he had terrible problems with just about everything. And what what he came back with, he wasn't terribly happy with. But at the same time, they were working on these really revolutionary special effects with these fighter planes and all this stuff. And the first editing, the first cut of the film he did... He didn't have any of these special effects, so he had to cut in old war footage of uh, fighter planes, uh, you know, during World War II. So there was none of this kind of sense of the future in it. It was all just the dialogue scenes, and a lot of the dialogue scenes were, in my opinion, really clunkers. I felt the picture was in terrible trouble. And so he was trying to raise a little money to go out and, and shoot some more things to try to jack the thing up. And he was flying into L.A., down to L.A. from San Francisco, like twice a week to try to get these uh, special effects shots done. And so he asked me if you know I'd shoot the second unit and help him you know, fill in some of these scenes. And so I uh, went out to Death Valley and shot three or four different scenes and uh and we shot i think i think we shot for a week and then a couple of days in los angeles on the stage and it was you know stuff like the bar scene and the, the little jawa guys the little guys with the eyes that light up and you know, a lot of different scenes and then the black stallion started to take off and i you know was working on that and and then I went to the, it was in L.A. when when uh, Star Wars opened. I was driving down the street, and I came across the theater, and here was this line that went like 10 blocks down the road. What in the world is going on? I had no idea what had happened, you know, until I actually saw the film and saw, how, you know, the, and the difference that the special effects and the, and the music and... Uh, and all the special stuff that it, that used to jack the film up, how it worked. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was so surprising. I mean, no one would have could have imagined that that film would turn out to be what it was, based on what what he what he really had in his bag when he finished shooting, supposedly. But um, my responsibility was just to was just to be a cameraman and to, to shoot this stuff for him. But he had a he had a clear idea where he was going. But I tell you, when the when the when the limos showed up at his screening room to to see this film, I mean, it was grim, grim. God, 
I felt so sorry for George. <laughs> and he came out of it as champion of the world and five billion dollars to boot. <laughs> <laughs> he did okay. Uh, my final question is, uh, this is a hypothetical situation. I'm a producer, and I'm going to finance and give you final cut on the Monkey Wrench Gang by Edward Abbey. Are you game? Yep. Any time that that film becomes a reality. But I can tell you, until there's a revolution in this country, that is not going to happen. And why, why is that, you think? Because the powers are too great. There's too much money behind keeping the status quo. There is unlimited billions of dollars poured into seeing that, the, that you know, that we don't start talking about things like the Monkey Ranch Gang. I would like to thank Carol Ballard for agreeing to do the interview. Remember, The Black Stallion will be shown Saturday, January 13, 2018 at 2 p.m. at the main library on 615 Church Street in the auditorium. Today's music is from The Black Stallion by Carmen Coppola. <laughs>